So just to review, um, this year we've been working with the basic model that the Buddha used over and over again in his teaching. He taught, as some of you know, for over 40 years. So he had his big insight under the Bodhi tree, as the legend goes, or the recorded history goes, uh, when he was around 35. And then he didn't pass away until he was in 80 or maybe even a little bit older. So he taught for a long time. And uh, because at the time they weren't, they, they had a written language at the time, but it was only used for commerce. They, they didn't think it was appropriate to write down spiritual things at that time. Not just in terms of the Buddhist tradition, but any spiritual tradition. They, they thought anything important should be uh, kept orally. So the Buddha often used um, various lists or various ways of organizing his teachings. And one of the main systems or models is the Four Noble Truths. And then uh, the Fourth Noble Truth is this Eightfold Path. And that's what we've been talking about all year is the Eightfold Path. So I just want to review how the Eightfold Path fits with the Four Noble Truths just for a few minutes. So mostly uh, because of the way we've been brought up and because of our inclinations, our way of being in the world is mostly about, and this is true with animals, besides the human animal, it's true with other animals. Our basic orientation in life is we're constantly alert to what we like and we want to get it and hold on to it and protect it. And we're also alert to what we don't like or what threatens us. And we're trying to get away from it. And if we can't get away from it, we're trying to distract ourselves from it or do something uh, so that we don't feel uh, overwhelmed by what we don't like. And this is our basic approach, basic approach of m most animals most of the time. To hold on to what we like, try to get what we like, try to get away from what we don't like. And so the Buddha said, uh, if a person is interested in, in a deeper kind of happiness, then we need to replace that basic way of being, that basic way of living, with another. We call this just a spiritual orientation. So instead of seeking what we like and getting rid of what we don't like, instead our life revolves around deepening our understanding. And in particular, our understanding around suffering or dukkha. Dukkha is the word, the Pali word, that's the talks have been recorded over the centuries in Pali, that language spoken around the time of the Buddha. So the Four Noble Truths is this reorientation. There is dukkha. And this is not meant to be a philosophical statement, but like even right now as I'm saying these Four Noble Truths, see if you can recognize the truth of dukkha right now in your life. It could be as simple as just being a little hot or a little uncomfortable, or it could be more subtle kind of dukkha, just a, a uncomfortable feeling because tomorrow's Monday and you've got a lot of work to do. Or you're 48 years old and you don't want to be 48 years old. So we have all kinds of layers of dissatisfaction or stress or suffering. And what the Buddha says is, wake up to that. There is suffering. Really get that truth. That's a relevant truth to recognize all the time in our lives. 
And then if we really can open to that truth, then we begin to have this possibility of opening to the cause. Like, how is it that stress, dissatisfaction, dis-ease, anxiety, how does suffering arise? What are the, what are the sort of causal um, qualities of this thing coming to be? So there is suffering, and it doesn't appear out of nowhere. When suffering arises in our heart, in our mind, it's following a sort of a natural or a lawful progression or unfolding. And we can see that. So there is suffering, so we want to open to that truth in our life, whether it's subtle or obvious. And we want to recognize there's a cause, and then recognize that if that cause isn't there, suffering disappears. So that seems to be a relevant thing to see in our lives. Like, how is it that suffering ends? Like, think about it. Think about how many times we were in really, really deep suffering in our lives. Maybe we broke up with somebody, got divorced, or maybe somebody we loved died or left. Or maybe we had a lot of physical pain that we couldn't manage or control. Maybe we're upset about how many people are suffering in the world. But we've all had moments of tremendous suffering. And where is it now? I mean, maybe some of it's still alive in us. But some of that, those moments of suffering, have actually ended. So how did that happen? How did we go from suffering to non-suffering? What occurred? So that's the third noble truth, is to see, to understand the end of suffering. How is it that this heart, and when I say heart, I just mean, um, you know, when we say that I'm suffering, whatever that location of suffering is, that's our heart. So when you know you're suffering, the place that that suffering resides, that's our heart. So we know there's suffering, we know there's a cause, we see the end. And when we see the end of suffering, when we see how that arises, there's an understanding, there's a deeper understanding about how to live our lives. And this leads us right to the Eightfold Path, which we've been talking about. Now, of course, we could organize it or talk about this way of living that supports non-suffering in any number of ways. But the Buddha organized it in terms of eight steps. And then he simplified it in terms of three sections. So the eight are put into three categories. So January and February, I talked about the first section of the Eightfold Path, which has to do with wisdom or right view. And the two parts of the Eightfold Path that fit into that is right view and right intention. And then the next section that we've been talking about since uh, is sila, or ethical conduct, or living in harmony, or morality. And it includes right action, right speech, and right livelihood. And then this last section that we'll be talking about for several months, called samadhi, or the unification or concentration of the mind, it includes right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So that makes up the eight. And the nice way to think about these three sections, really the, the basic tool for all three of these sections we could call 
wise consideration or appropriate attention. Generally, we call it mindfulness, but technically, in, in the discourses the Buddha gave, he would often put the word sati, which is often translated as mindfulness, with wisdom. So wisdom mindfulness. So it's just not seeing clearly, but there's a quality of reflection that goes hand in hand with the clear seeing. So one way to understand this um, basic uh, catalyst for deepening understanding our life, mindfulness, is that uh, it's not just that we're paying attention, but we know how to pay attention. We know where to pay attention. Like some things are more important to recognize than others. For example, it's a lot more relevant to notice the presence of suffering than it is to just feel the air touching the skin. They're both things that are happening in the present moment. So there are many things we could be paying attention to. And so the Buddha tells us, pay attention to these four things, suffering, its cause, its end, and the insight into how to live that supports the ending of suffering. This is what we should really be mindful of. And so one way to think about how mindfulness supports these three sections is in terms of purification. So with the first section, and it's not really sequential, we're purifying our understanding. So we all have all kinds of silly views about the way things are based on you know the culture we grew up with and the parents we had and all of that, kids we hung around with. And so we have these views about life, about what's important, about where happiness is. And so we use our mindfulness, our wise consideration, our appropriate attention. We use it to purify our views so that our views, our understanding, is coming out of the way things are as opposed to something that's been handed to us. So that's a process of purification. The second part we talked about, sila, or morality, we're purifying our actions. So when our actions are coming out of views, you know, maybe we have the view that I'm the best in the world and everybody's second best compared to me, or I'm the worst in the world and everybody's better than me. So if that's our view, then you can see our actions that come out of those kinds of views will be a particular way. And so because our views are off, our actions are off. We feel it's appropriate to seek revenge or to be resentful. Because of our views, it seems appropriate to strike back when we've been hit. And so we purify our actions by paying attention. Does hitting get somebody back, you know, insulting somebody after they've humiliated us or whatever, does that actually make us happy? We just look. And in looking and seeing, we begin to understand what, a- what actions really support happiness and what kind of actions, what kind of livelihood, what kind of speech doesn't support, li- uh, support happiness. And in bringing our mindfulness to our actions, to how we are in the world, how we relate to others, we just uh, we purify our actions and we start having more harmony in our lives. So the first purification is of our of understanding, and we purify our actions, which lead to harmony. Now this next section that we're going to be talking about for a while is purifying the mind. 
I'm sure you've noticed that our minds are often filled with all kinds, in Buddhism we call them hindrances or defilements. Last year, for the almost the entire year, I, every Sunday and Wednesday, I gave talks on the defilements. <laughs> for those of you who are around, you remember. It's amazing how much we can say, or anybody can say, about the defilements. And the more we meditate, the more we're mindful in our lives, the more we really get to know our defilements. We see what pushes our buttons, and there it is, in living color, jealousy, you know, irritation, boredom, craving, lust, you know, hoping, imagining, fantasizing. We have so many different ways that we take ourselves away from our life. Sort of, we whip up some kind of a storm. That's what a defilement is. We whip up some sort of mental storm and then we live inside of it. This is the downside of having a, you know, having a mind that has language, the possibility of cre creating mental constructs, is we can create hell. <laughs> And see, the problem is once we create hell, we, we think it's real. And so we react to it as if it's real, and that perpetuates the hell. And that's our predicament. And so this is really what we're working on with this section of the Eightfold Path that we call Samadhi, which is the unification of mind. What this is more than anything else is learning to abandon the hindrances. Not forever, but just in moments, 10 seconds, minutes, maybe a half an hour when our practice is really, really, really strong, been developed over years, we can put aside the five hindrances. This is just another list to help people remember, but you could come up with any number of ways of organizing the defilements, and the Buddha did. You know, when he wanted to call the defilements in terms of one thing, he'd say it's ignorance. When he wanted to describe the defilements in terms of three things, he'd say greed, hatred, and delusion. And if he wanted to do it in five things, he'd say greed or uh, craving, ill will or aversion, and then that, these are kind of a pair. And then another pair, not enough energy, which is dullness, sleepiness, you know, that inertia in the mind, uh, sinking mind, heavy mind. And it's opposite, restlessness, worrying, a constant agitation uh, movement in the mind, and then doubt. And that, this isn't sort of a critical doubt, like you're, you're investigating whether this is true in your experience. That kind of doubt is quite useful. But this is a, a doubt where we're constantly avoiding practicing and instead just sort of think, you know, do I know it, should I do this, should I do that? And then we sort of avoid getting down to business in our life. Skeptical doubt, sometimes it's called. So this is a nice list, and you might want to remember this list. These two are easy because they're so obvious, and especially if you've been hearing talks or doing some reading in the Buddhist tradition. Craving and aversion, greed and hatred. Those are sort of that basic... Uh, model that we, all of us, including the other animals, operate with, getting what we want, getting away from what we don't want. And then the other two are just imbalances of energy. Not enough energy is dullness and inertia and sleepiness and heaviness in the mind. 
too much energy, we worry and we get agitated, we get restless. And then this one might be a little harder to remember because you can't tag it to anything. But that's doubt. And uh, so we have these five hindrances. And this is really useful in terms of trying to understand what samadhi is all about. Because if we think about samadhi in terms of, oh, I'm trying to concentrate the mind, what we usually do then is we create an image of what Mark looks like with a concentrated mind. And then we, then we get angry at ourselves for not being that image, not being living up to that idea. So instead, it's much more practical to look directly at the mind and to recognize the hindrances that are there or not there. And, and really, it's a, um, and I'll talk about the different ways we uh, purify the mind. Remember, this part of practice is purifying the mind. It's not about purifying the actions. It's not about purifying the view. We're just learning to quiet the mind down in this section of the Eightfold Path. And of course, you know, we're always in our lives doing all three of these sections. We're not just exclusively doing concentration or samadhi practice or just doing siva or ethical conduct practice. But we're working on all levels at all the time. One of the first parts of samadhi practice, you know, when you think of the Eightfold Path, it's right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the three work together. In order to liberate our mind from the hindrances temporarily, we need all three of those to work together. But I'll be talking about right effort uh, for a while now, for the next few weeks. But you always have to bring in the other two. So you can't really separate these three things. When we're working skillfully with our mind, and really bringing it into a wholesome place where it's not afflicted with greed and with aversion and restlessness and dullness and doubt. We're really working. There needs to be the right kind of effort. And right is important here. The word uh, right, sama in Pali, it means the kind of effort that leads to a wholesome result. Because, you know, we can make all kinds of unwholesome efforts which we usually call striving in terms of Buddhist practice, or um, craving, right? Craving is a kind of effort, trying to get something, but it leads to suffering. So this kind of effort is very particular. So I'm going to talk over the next few weeks about different ways to understand this right effort. One way to think about this effort, um, you know, our life, to, to live a wholesome life, we need tremendous energy. In a way, we could say one of the greatest obstacles to learning what we need to learn, learning how to be a wiser, more loving person, is we're overwhelmed, we're burnt out, and we just don't have enough energy to pay attention. And if we're not paying attention, we won't learn anything. We'll just continue our habits. And then we, we get more exhausted because our habits aren't very wholesome. And we get, get in a rut. And we all find ourselves in that rut or those ruts to some degree. So 
one way to understand like how do we get this energy it's really about a right effort we're making an effort not to increase our energy level we're making an effort to abandon what is draining our energy and this is important to understand and this is especially true in terms of our meditation practice we sit down we may you know if we're sitting down doing our meditation practice in the evening we might feel restless if things have been stirred up during the day or we may feel exhausted but if we make right effort we will you know we'll have a whole kind of uh, tool case of skillful means to abandon the hindrances and we'll make right effort which means we're going to use those skillful means those techniques to abandon how the mind is being dispersed distracted so the, this in a way we can think of the heart or mind as having this wellspring of energy bottomless source of energy but when our habit energy when our habits are sort of unwholesome habits are operating freely then what it is it's this this uh, this very pervasive dispersal of energy all of our worries all of our planning all of our hopes and dreams all of that mental activity is simply dispersing this energy and so there's no clarity there's no when we even when we have the inclination to do something like meditate or if we're meditate even if we have the wholesome inclination to come back to the body you know we've been distracted we're going to come back there's no chart we don't really have the energy to overcome the habit habit energy because all of the energy of the mind is dispersed so the key in the beginning is to know what right effort is how to abandon the things that are causing the energy of the mind to be dispersed so this is why there's such an emphasis in buddhist practice especially about letting go or renunciation the most important place for renunciation is as skillful as it is to learn to live simply you know in terms of our possessions it's much more skillful and important to learn how to have a simple mind you know to let go of thoughts and worries and whatever mental content that's not serving any useful purpose i i took a retreat once with shokni rinpoche he's a tibetan teacher Tibetan man and uh, teaches Buddhism and he uh, he said something once I thought was interesting he said after I thought something five times I don't think it again or something like that it's like once it's come up five times that's usually enough we don't need to think it again and just think about how many times we've chewed on particular themes or subjects over and over again and it you know these the reasons we're addicted to this thinking is it's uh there's a feedback loop where the image and thought triggers some sort of emotional response and even if that emotional response is unpleasant it makes us feel alive and so we indulge in the thinking we feel that emotional response what is that emotional response to what is a trigger more thinking right and the thinking triggers the emotional response and the emotional response triggers the thinking and there's this feedback loop 
And there's often many of those feedback loops going. And we'll go to this, to that, because they're associated with one another. You know, I start dwelling on how somebody is not treating me the way they should treat me. And then that reminds me about somebody else who's not treating me the way that I want them to treat me. You know, and one, and then, and then that feeling of victimhood, that brings up all kinds of other related feelings and thoughts. And pretty soon we're old. It's good to laugh. But there's, but there's some real truth to that. How much of our life have we spent in unproductive thinking? I mean, you know, we always hear, they, I don't know why this always gets thrown around, because I guess because it's surprising, you know, this uh, fact about how much of our life is spent sleeping. But can you imagine if we saw, if we had a good statistic for how much of our life is spent thinking in ways that are, it's not just that it's unproductive, but it's productive of suffering. That we're actually indulging in mental activity that creates suffering. I mean, it's unbelievable. And and this is a warning for all of you who are are going to continue your your mindfulness meditation practice. As your practice continues, this truth will become painfully obvious. (laughs) This is what mindfulness gives you. It's the great gift of mindfulness practice, actually. But it's uh, very sobering and it's not so pleasant. It's humiliating, actually, to see how much our mind indulges in ways that are unwholesome. And it teaches us a very important Dharma lesson, which is forgiveness and patience. It's probably the most important lesson we'll ever learn because the key, and this goes back to what we're talking about in terms of right effort, when we see that, the key is not to react to seeing how unskillful we are by hating ourselves. Because that's what? It's more unskillfulness. And we just feed that monster. And we just suffer accordingly. So just like we want to make right effort here, we want to make right effort as we see more and more of this. And the right effort is to just abandon what needs to be abandoned. So when something is coming up, like let's say somebody said something to me recently and it hurt, right? And this is based on real life experience. (laughs) And I bet everybody here in this room, somebody has said something to you in the last few days that hurt. Anybody not have that experience? (laughs) And have you, really? Oh, good. You have good karma. (laughs) Has anybody uh, not said something that should have said something that would have made you feel good? (laughs) Because you could dwell on that. That would hurt. (laughs) Then you feel like you're part of the group. Because we're not just hurt when people say things, we're also hurt when people don't say things that they might have said. But in any case, if we have that experience, then when that thought comes up, we might think that what we have to abandon, because we think, oh, we see, this is not skillful to be dwelling with hatred or resentment or wanting revenge. 
So we might think, I have to get rid of this thought. I've got to stop thinking about what this person said. And superficially, there's some truth to that. But in terms of the actual technique, it's not useful to hate that thought. And I use hate on purpose, because you wouldn't say that you're hating that thought. You'd say, I'm just trying to take care of myself by getting, getting rid of this thinking that's hurting. But the way to abandon or to stop this sort of unwholesome activity is not to try to destroy, try to get rid of that thought. It's actually much simpler than that. What we have to do is we have to abandon the hindrance. It's the ill will, not the thought. The thought and the emotion that goes with the thought is unpleasant, right? And the unpleasantness is the cause for hating or ill will or aversion to arise. That's what we can abandon. And the way we abandon the aversion is we just see it. The thing about these hindrances, greed or craving, wanting, aversion, restlessness, dullness, doubt, the thing about any of these afflictive states of mind is they depend on not seeing it clearly. If we see any of these hindrances clearly, it's like we're seeing that we're holding a hot pot and we just let go. We don't have to plan, oh, should I let go or when should I let go? We just let go. And it's the same. If we really see the hindrance, we just drop it. Because the way the mind works is that hindrance, let's say aversion, because that's the example I've been giving. Someone said something that hurt. Then we're dwelling on, we're just sort of repeating that memory in our mind. Like I said earlier, that memory is the cause for this emotional reaction. The memory is painful, and then we don't like that pain. Now, we can instead, if we see that, not, uh, that memory, if we see that pattern, the memory and then the not liking of it, the memory the not liking of it, we're going to go for the memory first, but instead we can just see how painful the not liking of it is. That's a contraction of the heart. The not liking of the memory is a contraction. So all we have to do actually is let the memory arise with equanimity, with impartiality. If we can let that painful memory arise and not react to the pain. So remember, we're actually feeling the pain of that memory, the humiliation or whatever that that feels like to remember that painful thing that the person said to us, the hurtful thing. If we can let that arise as it actually is, without letting that memory be the cause for hating, then the chain is broken. So what is let go of isn't the memory, because that would be pushing it away. We're not actually in control of what gets triggered, what comes up. But we do have a choice how we respond to the memory, or to pain in the body, or to any difficult or pleasant situation. We can respond with greed if it's pleasant, or aversion if it's unpleasant, or we can respond with equanimity. So right effort is understanding that responding, seeing that responding with any contraction, the contraction of greed or the contraction of aversion, 
doesn't help. It's painful. It's more suffering. And we don't take it up. If it's already there, we abandon it. If it hasn't yet arisen, we don't take it up. We make the effort not to pick it up, not to go there. So, for example, if I have that painful memory in my mind, and I can bring it up right now, and I can make the effort, the skillful effort, the right effort, not to pick it up. Now, how do we not pick up anger when we're seeing something that's painful? Who knows? Just in your own experience right now, bring something to mind that's painful. And what can you do to prevent the mind from reacting with anger or aversion or wanting to push it away? Mm-hmm. Maybe understand that fear is anger or fear for what it is. Yeah, yeah. See it for what it is. Because if we really stay attentive to the pain, so this is why mindful is such a good word. We're mindful of the pain. That means the mind is full of that experience of pain. There's no space in the mind to react. So we completely expose ourselves. We're open to the experience in the moment. If we're fully there, that right effort of being fully there with it prevents reactivity from happening. It's the only way. If we're wavering, if we're not really there, it creates the space for reactivity to come in. So we have to really give ourselves to the, these experiences, the pleasant experiences and the unpleasant experiences. So in a way, we're really there with the experience. And then if, if the anger starts to rise, then we're really there with the anger arising. So. Sometimes we're there with the pain, but we're, we're wavering. We think we're really there, but we're not completely there. So there's a little space for anger to come in. And that's just the way it is. To not want the anger to come in is more anger. It's just more aversion. So we have to turn to it, even though we wish it weren't there. You know, because we know better. I'm a meditator. I shouldn't be responding with aversion. <laughs> but there we are, responding with aversion. So we have to turn to the aversion, and we do the same thing. We completely open to the aversion so that the aversion isn't the cause for more aversion to arise. Because if we're really there with any state, it comes and it goes, like all things do. And it isn't the cause for something else. That's the third noble truth, seeing the end. And the cause for seeing that end is not to react from a self-centered point of view. If we can practice non-reactivity, things end. Attachments end. Resentment ends. Now, we may recreate it in two moments from then. But in that moment, we really see it. There was resentment, and now it's gone. And that creates a lot of confidence in the mind. Because we see that suffering isn't coming from outside of me. I'm not suffering because someone said something that was hurtful. I'm suffering because my mind is indulging in it. I'm whipping up a storm and living inside of that storm. And it doesn't and it's great to know that we do it because that means we don't have to do it. But most of the time we live our life assuming that the suffering is coming from outside of ourselves. But it's not.
so much of our practice is really getting the lawfulness of how things work. In Buddhism, we call this karma, that intentionality has consequences. Intentional thought has consequences. Intentional actions have consequences. And so in this particular practice of samadhi, quieting the mind, and and in particular with right effort, we're just understanding how our intention, the quality of our intention, makes a big difference. So like our intention has a lot to do with our effort. You know, we're, we see something in our mind, we experience something in our practice, and we have an intention. You know, either the intention to react or the intention to be steady, to see it, to be open, not to react. And whether we go this way or that way, has real consequences. And just see for yourself. Like I've noticed, if I dwell on something long enough, whether I want to act it out in the world or not, I will act it out. Because what I've been doing is I've been digging a rut, a groove, in my mind. Nobody else might know it, but if I dig that groove deep enough, when I'm not careful, I'll just act it out. So just a simple example I've given before, especially early on uh, in my marriage with Wynn, my wife, you know, she would do things that would bug me. (laughs) This shouldn't surprise anybody (laughs) who has a good friend or a partner. And, uh, but I knew, you know, I'm supposed to be a good person. And so you don't always, you don't bring up everything that bugs you. You just pick certain things, right? (laughs) And so I would not say everything that bugged me, but I would let my mind, I would think, oh, you know, it doesn't hurt anybody. I'm not saying, I'm not going to say anything, but you know, and I'd indulge in that thought, you know, in different ways. It would be so nice if, or doesn't she understand that? Or, And then, even though I was very clear that this was not appropriate to bring up, I've said too many things recently, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't bring up anything else, <laughs> or she'll be out the door, or something like that. But I noticed that if I'm not, you know, and we we're, of course we're not continuously mindful, so in those moments where I'm not being mindful, I just find myself saying it. Because I've allowed it to spin in my mind, it has a life of its own. Despite my intention not to say it out loud, I say it. Does this sound familiar? So that's why we need to take responsibility for what's going on in our minds, because it has consequences. This is just one example of that. But everything we allow ourselves to indulge in has consequences. And I know this can seem a little scary when we think, oh, that's right. But right then, when you start to panic, look at what you're indulging in and ask yourself, is this what I want to indulge in? Oh no, I'm in a heap of trouble. Well, if that kind of thinking inspires you toward wholesome effort, then maybe it's a little that is okay. If it inspires a lot of self-hatred, then maybe it's time to abandon it to sort of see the hatred as suffering and to let go. 
to feel the pain of all the remorse, you know, all those thoughts we've had in our life that haven't been wholesome, let's feel the remorse without reacting to the pain with judgment or self-hatred. It's okay to feel the remorse. It's actually healing to feel the remorse. We are, we're imperfect human beings. I'm not part of any of the AA or the, yeah, the AA groups, but I know they have this uh, ritual where people sometimes will say, you know, I'm Mark and I, I'm an alcoholic or something like that. And we could say that every morning to ourselves or to our partners, you know, hi, I'm Mark and I'm an imperfect human being. And it's, it's like really nice to understand that because it, it, it uh, helps us understand this right effort. It's not about, we don't make the effort to be perfect. We make the effort to see things clearly. And in seeing things clearly, to abandon what's unwholesome. The actual abandoning, the actual letting go, happens with the effort to see things clearly. That's the great thing. You know, life seems so complicated to us, like how to be a good person, how to be a good partner, how to be a good meditator, how to be a good employee or a good citizen. Like just to figure out, you know, is this the time when we should all be marching in the streets because of what's going on in the world? Or is this the time just to, you know, get a good night's sleep and to cultivate really wholesome relationships with our family members and our partners and our people we work with. Who knows? That's a, you know, you can't figure that out. But what we can do is we can just cultivate this right effort. And we might find that we're really marching in the streets and we're sort of tackling the big issues. Or we might find that we're acting locally. So the development of our life doesn't depend on how we act, what we do, what kind of job we have, whether we have a partner or don't have a partner. We can cultivate this freedom regardless of the externals of our lives. And it's such a, such a relief not to think that Mark, in order to be happy, has to follow a particular route. The path we have to follow is an internal, it's an, uh, uh, an internal letting go that happens as we cultivate awareness. And it really has very little to do with all those other things, what we do for a living, who we hang around with. I mean, whether we hang around with this person or that person, whether we march in the streets or dedicate our lives to something more local. So I think I'll leave it here. Worried about some homework um, just to help focus our practice. So try to remember the five hindrances, all forms of greed or craving, all forms of aversion or fear. Fear is a form of aversion. Boredom is a form of aversion. Impatience. So greed and aversion. And then the other pair of opposites, restlessness and dullness, sleepiness, and then doubt. And then specifically, you can look at uh, what, what in Buddhism are called another list, 
one of the four exertions, which is the first exertion is to prevent unwholesome states like these five hindrances from arising. So when the mind doesn't have them, what can you do to prevent them from coming in? So this is a so uh, notice times when there isn't ill will in your mind, isn't greed in your mind, and just try to have a sense of the absence of the hindrances. Like Cindy was suggesting, you know, maybe she doesn't have a lot of resentment because nobody said anything to her that's been hurtful lately. So we tend to notice resentment, but do we notice non-resentment, non-ill will, non-greed, the times when we're feeling content? So we want to notice them and have that continuity so then when a little bit of aversion comes in or a little bit of greed, we actually see that causal unfolding. That is so useful to see how it go, the mind goes from non-aversion to aversion or non-greed to greed. Non-restlessness, you know, there's that nice evenness and all of a sudden there's that agitation or the mind is very clear and energized and then it sinks. And it has nothing to do with being sleepy, but it just sinks. And just to see, well, how did that heaviness in the mind come come to be? What were the causes and conditions? We're feeling really happy, and we go to work, and it feels like there's 10 pounds on our head, you know? And we just can't be there. And then we say, oh, something happened. It's not just being at work, it's how we're relating to being at work. And we can actually see how that comes in if we watch this. So this is called guarding the senses. We're not preventing sense experience, but we're really watching what we see, what we feel in the body, what we think, what we smell, taste. I'm missing one, but you get the idea. Five physical senses in the mind. And we're watching them in order to see any of the hindrances coming in, to catch them as early as possible. So that's the homework assignment for this week. Okay. So we have some time now. If people have any thoughts from your own practice you'd like to share with the group or any questions that you might have, working with right effort or working with the hindrances, or anything that seems relevant. Cindy. This is from my own practice, but I'm kind of really inspiring. Um, my next-door neighbor, um, I learned this morning that he was assaulted um, yesterday afternoon on the um, bike path of the uh, Minnesota Greenway and knocked off his bike and um, ripped off and, and had the hospital for five hours and my other neighbor found him kind of wandering around in his yard, blocked out of his house and took him home and and, um, and so when I heard this I prepared a little basket with some food and, and a little bake of flowers and I brought it over to something called the first of I didn't want him to have to walk downstairs if he was resting or something and I thought he might be in really bad shape because that's what my neighbors were saying. And um, he came over, he came all the way over to my house like five minutes later. And he was, he was so full of light. And he was telling me how how wonderful everybody was and how the neighbors uh, gave him a sandwich and a shower and then it was then a night and the other neighbor got the ladder to go break into the cups and peas were stolen. <laughs> I brought him all this stuff and he was just going on and 
time. He's only been pra- he's been practicing uh, less than a year, but it was just and, and he was sincere and it, it wasn't you know mm-hmm. fake. And he was talking about you know the people that assaulted him, his kids, and how he was feeling towards them. Um, some some passion, how they would turn out to be that way. Yeah. So the whole right effort thinking um, was just, you know, in place and, and the benefit that came back. He was just so grateful. Mm-hmm. These little things. Someone called the police. You know, who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. And he was seeing he was seeing all that in such a great light. Yeah. I think it's a great example because even if he's uh, whether he's a Buddhist or not, of course it doesn't matter, but if he's well practiced, still there was probably some inclination to react with anger. But he didn't pick it up. He didn't pick it up. And that's like that famous uh, line in the Dhammapada, you know, he beat me, he robbed me. You dwell on that and you, you create suffering. But the one who doesn't dwell on that creates happiness. And uh, that's, that's the ticket. You know, just because we've been beaten and robbed doesn't mean we should dwell on it with aversion. It doesn't do any good to dwell on it with aversion. So we want to realize a way of relating to it that isn't the cause for aversion. And he noticed, like the example you gave, Cindy, he he didn't, I mean, he uh, dwelled on uh, gratitude. And... uh, just feelings of warmth for the people who took care of him. What a, you know, how much more skillful is that? Just a beautiful example. Thanks. Other thoughts people have? Mm-hmm. Mike. Uh, I just got done with a really long car trip, and on the way I was listening to a uh, radio show about a man who was falsely in prison for 21 years. On NPR or something like that. And uh, in, in the end, he got a chance to meet the guy who was coerced into accusing him. And they described the scene. Here's the man who, was fal- who, who falsely accused, crying out of, out of regret for having done this. And here's the man who is falsely accused, just got out of prison for 21 years, embracing him and comforting the man and uh, and saying how for 21 years in prison he often would be in bed at night uh, praying for the comfort of all these people who were involved in this mess that had created this whirlwind of false imprisonment and accusations and stuff. And it was a beautiful story. I found myself shedding some tears as I'm driving down the road, lack of sleep too. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it really caused me to reflect a lot about, uh, about especially the extreme of that thing. 21 years is a long time. And he seemed to have used that 21 years very skillfully. And when asked repeatedly for uh, probation reasons, just to recant and say he did it, just show some remorse, and we'll let you out. He said, I can't do it. It's a lie. I would be lying. I, I have to stay here. Because I, if you're asking me... So think about that. That was a lot to think about. A, a small lie could have set him free. Yeah. But he would not do it. Yeah. There's a couple of stories like that, that. And I think they are so inspiring for the rest of us. When, when people uh, don't pick up 
what is so obvious to pick up. You know, they don't pick up the resentment and live with it. Yeah. There's another example some of you have heard me say about a woman whose son was shot, just one of those random killings. And uh, the, they caught the killer. He went. He was a juvenile. He was in juvenile hall for a couple of years and then released. And she adopted him. And it's it just the story is just uh, about that process. And uh, the time when he was convicted, she uh, she was in the courthouse evidently and said to him, uh, "I'm going to kill you." And later, she said uh, that I realized I did kill the killer. The killer is not there anymore. And uh, so they were both redeemed in a way by that. It's just another one of those stories. Mm-hmm. Andy? confusing on the level of the story so we have to we have to know that it, it is confusing it's very confusing but the confusion is just on that layer that involves the story and so we want to if we can and that story is very seductive that's why we we're fixated with the story but if we can drop beneath the story to the actual feeling and when I say feeling, I mean the energetic feeling, which includes the emotions that are alive in the body, um, and turn to the pain. And so to know what to pay attention to, go to where the pain is most intense. Let that be the guide. Go to where it's most intense and practice letting it be what it is. Now, there will be times when it will be too strong, it will be overwhelming, and you can't. And then you have to find some skillful escape because you can't handle the pain. And, it, in, and because you can't handle the pain, it will lead to unwholesome thinking. So you need a skillful distraction. It might be just doing some compassion for yourself. You know, life is really difficult and I care about, I care about this suffering, I care about this confusion. Or it might be talking to a friend who's not going to uh, encourage you to dwell with unwholesome states. Yeah, he shouldn't, you know, it's not going to feed that part of you. But it's just going to help you calm down, help you see pre- maybe a bigger perspective about what's going on. 
help you understand that you don't want to do things that are going to create more suffering for yourself, for yourself or others. Could be anything, you know, that helps you get some stability so that eventually you can go back and go to where the pain is strongest. So, like, if you do have that tendency to turn it in on yourself, you don't even need to sort of understand it on that level because if you're just keen about seeing where the pain is strongest, you will naturally go to that self-hatred or judgment and feel that pain because that's what's going to be strong. And you can just stay there. And then with that pain, um, the, the effort is not to, not to move away, not to be afraid, not to assume that the pain is uh, wrong. It is painful. It is intense. But that doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't mean that we need to push it away or hurry it up, hurry it up. But we can just let it take its natural course. And we can remind ourselves that it's not permanent because part of the story, you know, the surface thing is that this pain will be here forever unless I, you know, get revenge or uh, fix myself or... And we have to understand, based on our own experience, that this pain will go away. If I stay steady and don't react, this pain will bloom, get really intense, and fall away. And this is true whether we stub our toe or humiliate ourselves in front of a group or get insulted. Whatever the pain is, it blooms and then it falls away. If we, and if we react and feed it, well, then it can last you know, generations. Some anger, you know, lasts maybe forever. I mean, the human mind, because it has this capacity to recreate things, it can recreate the story that supports the anger over and over again, forever. Does that help, Andy? Oh, we're a little bit over. Sorry. <laughs>